0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and as you may have been following this podcast over the years, one thing that I typically talk about and hint at um, but have never gotten super deep into is this link between Pakistan's debt crises, the exchange rate and the fiscal deficit. And for those of you who've taken some economics in in undergrad or graduate school or have PhDs in economics kind of know that relationship, but a lot of people in Pakistan don't. And that's unfortunately not even part of the mainstream discourse in the country. When people talk about the value of the rupee, they conveniently tend to not talk about the fiscal deficit. Well, today we're going to help fix that um, because I have with me Dr. Derek Chen, He's a senior economist for Pakistan at the World Bank in Islamabad, um, and he's been at the World Bank since 2000. Uh, He's been overseeing the macroeconomics and fiscal programs and leads the production of various reports at the World Bank in Islamabad. And the most recent one uh, that's out there is called the Pakistan Federal Public Expenditure Review 2023. And it's a very deep look, um, uh, especially for those of us who love to get into the data on um, what's going on in Pakistan on the expenditure side, why are deficits high, why is tax collection low, etc. So Derek, um, welcome to Pakistanamy and and thank you uh, for joining us today on this podcast.
1: Thank you. Uze. Uh, very, uh, It's uh, very good to be here on your show. Thank you. Let's begin by sort of, you know one of the things
0: that stood out to me in the report, and again, something that we often don't talk about in Pakistan is the scale uh, of the fiscal deficit um, that that's been there. And then you sort of let us know in the report that you know the national consolidated budget fiscal deficit has been close to six percent of GDP over the past decade. Um, And again, we'll get into why it's, you know, the relationship between that and the external sector, etc. in just a moment. But help the audience understand, why is it that Pakistan continues to run such a high fiscal deficit over such a prolonged period of time?
1: Um, Thank you, Uzay. Sure, that's that's actually a, a very important question. So just to highlight, yes. Uh, Pakistan's fiscal deficit has been large and persistent. In fiscal year 2022, the general government deficit stood at 7.9% of GDP, and that comes in about uh, 5.3 trillion rupees. And this has been the largest in more than 22 years. It has been persistent. Uh, Over the past decade, the fiscal deficit actually averaged around 6.2% of GDP, And just to put that in a different perspective, in a different way, over the past 13 years, that is since fiscal year 2010, the fiscal deficit has been larger than 5% of GDP every year, except for three years. So that's indeed very persistent. Now, as a result of these persistently large deficits, the public debt has seen a rapid accumulation and a public and publicly guaranteed debt reached 78% of GDP in FY22, which is slightly lower than the record high of 81.1% of GDP in FY20. As a result, both the deficit and debt levels are in breach of the fiscal rules stipulated by the Fiscal Responsibility and Debt Limitation Act or the FRDLA, which stipulates that the deficit should be no higher than 3.5% of GDP and, and that should be lower than 60% of GDP. Now, there are several reasons for the kind con- of uh, why deficits are persistently large. So first thing is that a revenue collection has been low and, and actually falling. So total revenue collection averaged around 12.8% of GDP over the past decade, which is actually a third lower than the South Asia regional average of 19.6%. And in in addition, it's been falling over time. In the report, we highlight that the tax system, particularly the GST system, is riddled with exemptions and concessionary rates, and that actually contributes to low tax collection, or one of the driving factors to low revenue tax collections. Another reason for we see as a driver for the persistent deficit is the challenging fiscal architecture. Now we know that uh, with the 18th amendment in 2010, 17 subject areas that includes culture, education, health and sports were actually devolved to the provinces. However, this devolution was incomplete and the federal government to date still has ministries overseeing many of these devolved subjects. At the same time, with the seventh NFC award, we know that uh, more than half of tax revenues are actually awarded to provinces. So when you put it together, the federal government continues to shoulder the majority of the national fiscal expenditures But at the same time, they have a lot less revenue to finance those expenditures. So with this, what we call vertical fiscal asymmetry is causing uh, persistent large deficits, particularly on the federal government side. And when we look at the fiscal deficits over time, it's true that post-2010, the fiscal deficits are actually 50% larger than it was before 2010. So we allude to that uh, this uh, new fiscal architecture does is one important factor in driving the larger deficits. Uh, Another reason that we highlight in the report is that fiscal institutions in Pakistan uh, are actually quite fragmented. Uh, The thing to begin with is that budgetary institutions in Pakistan that partake in fiscal policy making is actually quite numerous. Uh, when we count at at the province and at the federal level, there are at least 23 institutions that need to be involved. So the sheer number actually results in institutional gaps, which results in lack of focus on achievable, sustainable fiscal outcomes at the national level. However, through our technical assistance and budget support operations, we have been trying to come up uh, uh, with uh, support reforms that will enable the preparation of a national medium-term fiscal framework that will actually support a coherent and coordinated, sustainable f- fiscal policy making. So those are just some of the reasons that we think uh, drive physically large deficits.
0: So there, that's that's a good explanation in terms of. Um why we have this problem. And of course, we often hear in the Pakistani mainstream discourse, right, people don't pay enough taxes. So that's the, you know, tax to GDP ratio part that you highlighted. Um, You talk about, you know, SROs, people are familiar with that. Um, But, you know, one, one misnomer, I think that needs a bit of correction, and in the mainstream, particularly doesn't get talked about, right, is that every Pakistani is a taxpayer. The problem is that those uh, who should be paying a larger share of their earnings in taxes actually don't because of the exemption. So uh, the 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 chai boy in your office or the guard downstairs pays a lot of taxes in Pakistan. Their mobile phone top-up is taxed, their petroleum is taxed, their electricity is taxed, they pay GST, which is a regressive tax. Um, but when you look at the tax directory of parliamentarians, or we don't even get to ask these days about what the judges and the and the generals etc pay. Um, that really is the problem, or the exemptions to the sugar industry or to the agricultural landlords cetera. But you know, now that we understand why this is a problem, um, or, or what causes this problem, help help from your vantage point, folks, understand, um, why large and persistent fiscal deficits uh, should concern them like what is the impact what are the implications of this happening over a decade as you said in countries especially emerging and developing markets um, tax to gdp ratio should be going up over time in pakistan is the reverse We have the FBR talking about record tax collection while they frequently miss the point that basically they're running below the rate of inflation if you look at it in an annualized basis. So for the audience listening, they're not economists. Um, Why should they care a bit more about this issue that exists in Pakistan's economy?
1: Thank you. Uze. That is indeed a a very uh, important point and important for 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 all to to understand. So, in terms of a uh, large fiscal deficit that is persistent, a uh, fiscal deficit represents an imbalance, and it actually can lead to imbalances in other parts of the economy. For example, when we when the government runs a deficit, typically it has an f- expansionary fiscal policy, right? And when the government buys a lot of goods and services, right, there's strong economic growth. With strong economic growth overall for the economy, the economy tends to import more. Now, when exports are not growing too much, strong imports actually leads to an imbalance on the trade sector, where the country is actually buying a lot from the rest of the world, but not selling as much. So this leads to actually widening trade and current account deficits. Now, when you plot uh, the current account uh, deficit and the fiscal deficit, indeed, these two things tend to move together. Now, what's this, uh, so uh, now in turn, what's wrong with a a large current account deficit? Well, when you're buying too much from the rest of the world as opposed to what you're selling, uh, this is not sustainable, right? So what happens is that when the current account deficit is too large and fiscal res- uh, foreign reserves are too low to pay for them ultimately you uh, there needs to be cooling measures to cool down economic growth so they tend to import less Now this uh, when you look at Pakistan's history this actually happens on a, quite a regular ba- basis and we have a term for it. it is called recurrent boom-bust cycles so you're strong you have periods of strong economic growth then when cooling measures are applied then you have the economy has to cool down and this is exactly what where we are right now with the economy cooling down due to uh, a large fiscal uh, deficit uh sorry a current account deficit in, in in over the recent years after covid and this sort of Cool uh, recurrent boom-bust cycles is actually detrimental to to long-term investment and long-term economic growth. So that's that's one reason why why it is kind of bad. This macroeconomic volatility is just not good for the long-term development of any country. Now, with large fiscal deficits, it also implies that the government has little space for for a sustained public investment program. So when you look at the the amount of public investment that, that Pakistan invests in it is true that federal development spending is actually low and is actually falling in fy22 it only resulted it, it only amounted to 1.2% uh 1.2% of gdp which is very low right so other countries are like 5 or 6% many times of that now, another consequence of large fiscal deficits is that in order to pay for those deficits, the government ne- needs to borrow. Some of it, the borrowing comes from the uh, rest of the world, but also a large chunk of it is actually borrowing from the domestic financial or banking sector. It means that majority, a, a, a large chunk of the total credit is actually going to the government. Now as a residual, the amount that's going to the private sector is actually low. So when you look at credit to the private sector as a share of GDP uh, for Pakistan, it's actually lowest among the the peers. It's at 17% uh, in, in, in FY20. Whereas in other countries like Bangladesh, it was 22%. In Malaysia, it was 15%. So a lot lower than than uh, other peers in in the region, and this has resulted when when there's little financing going to the private sector. This has uh, is one contributing factor to the low private investment in Pakistan. So in 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 terms of how we see it, the the government deficit, the large government deficit, has actually crowded out private investment, and with low public investment, low private investment. Uh, low public and private investment, this means that the total investment in the country is low and this actually results in in low sustainable growth for for Pakistan. Now, uh, the report, the public expenditure report, actually does some sort of simulation analysis and it, it does show that if Pakistan were to embark on a sharp, fiscal uh consolidation uh, quickly regaining fiscal and debt sustainability the the country can actually be set on a significantly higher growth path where real gdp per capita by say 2030 2035 can be as much as 7% higher so we do show that that this through this sort of uh reduce crowding out of investment uh with with uh more fiscal consolidation it is actually good for the country
0: thanks for that explanation so derek um you know the crowding out part we've talked a lot about uh on this podcast including with some of your colleagues uh from the world bank as well um a, a key issue right when you talk to even right now business owners right is is this issue of very high interest rates and And people, again, miss this connection that the interest rates is going high because the federal government has been running persistent budget deficits that are causing issues across the economy, for which reason interest rates need to be raised. And then, of course, the sovereign keeps borrowing more and more, so it gets harder and harder Uh, for small businesses in particular to borrow from the banking sector. Uh, We had somebody on this podcast who described this as lazy banking, right? That the state is incentivizing lazy banking, which makes sense. Why would you want to go through all of the hassle of lending to a business owner, particularly a small business owner, um, when you can lend to the sovereign, Um, and earn a risk-free rate of return. And the sovereign has an insatiable appetite of borrowing, essentially. Um, And and then you go play golf at 2 p.m. once the treasury auction is done, right? It's it's a really high margin business if you think about it from the perspective of a bank. Um, And the state is incentivizing that for reasons that you just brilliantly described. Um, That then, of course, leads us to the question of like, The overall macro economy and we know and Pakistanis are very familiar with what we call boom and bust cycles even though I I don't like to call it that because there is no real boom it's just two years worth of like five percent growth and we're back to square one and in fact um, one trend maybe you agree with this I have noticed at least, is that that cycle is also sort of the peak is declining and the cycle is shortening in terms of how long can it actually last because it's becoming more and more suboptimal for the state to continue spending its way to generate growth. And and that leads to all sorts of uh, issues as well. Help us understand in the report, you do talk about um, overall macroeconomic instability and debt and, and deficits, et cetera. Help us understand the links uh, between these. How does overall instability in the macroeconomy then play a role in the issues that you just described on the deficit and debt side? Like what's going on here in Pakistan?
1: Right. So so um when you actually look at the at the debt stock and when you actually plot what's happening with the debt stock as a share of GDP, we can actually uh decompose. The, the sources or the contributing factors that let, lead to the change on a year by year basis, right? What is causing the differences between how the debt stock moves from year to year? Now, um, what, one thing when you, as a share of GDP, when the denominator grows, so when real GDP growth increases, your debt stock actually shrinks because the denominator is shrinking. And it's growing, so your ratio falls. So we, we actually show that real GDP growth over the past decade or so contributed more than 25 percentage points of GDP of the debt stock re- reducing. Now, what's causing it to grow? What's causing the numerator to grow? So that will be things like the primary deficit. And when when you compute that, it actually uh, accounts for a huge chunk, like 18.5 percentage points of GDP of additional debt is caused by the primary deficit uh, uh, being being positive. Now, one thing that we we found and that was quite surprising is the exchange rate depreciation actually causes uh, a larger effect on the debt stock than the primary deficit when you add up what was happening to the exchange rate depreciation on the debt stock for the past 10 years or so, it actually accounted for 25%, uh, twenty sorry, 22.5 percentage points of GDP that added to, to the debt level. So the, the takeaway message is that when you have macroeconomic volatility where there's sharp exchange rate movements, that actually can have a larger effect on the debt stock, than the primary deficit, so it is important. Actually, it's very important as far as possible to 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 avoid wild swings in your economy. So things like the boom-bust cycles, where or where you have monetary policy rates going. Going down by hundred basis points and then coming up by hundred and fifty, those wild swings in the economy, as far as possible, should should be should be minimized. So this again, goes to back to uh, having a stable macro economy is actually good for the economy in in many different aspects. But one we're high uh, highlighting here that uh, wild swings in the macro economy is actually very uh, quite detrimental to the debt stock. Uh, when you have a larger debt stock, it does mean that interest payments tend to to balloon. And when you have that, you have a larger deficit. So it's like a a, a vicious cycle, right? So macroeconomic uh stability is 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 important.
0: And I think again, like going going to that point on on large def- debt debt. sort of you know making you even more vulnerable we're seeing that in real time play out today right the budget conversation is about happening in Pakistan Uh, a lot of conversation on what the scale of the interest uh, servicing will be Um, and in a weird way that that leads to like Um, A bit of a ridiculous conversation, particularly in Islamabad, the town you're in, um, you know, in the sense that, oh, we just should reduce interest rates. And if we reduce interest rates and we will save so many trillions of rupees in debt servicing because we're paying through the nose for this this borrowing, Um, instead of actually looking at why is it that that borrowing need exists in the first place, right? And I think it's a very Um, You know, I I remember every time the State Bank of Pakistan decides to rate interest rates, um, the headline in the media will be uh, state bank raises interest rates by 100 basis points. Cost of debt servicing goes up by X hundred billion rupees. And that that's the second headline after that. Right. Without really helping people understand that this is not the relationship is a bit off. You shouldn't think about interest rates as sort of a means to control your servicing expense, there's they're being jacked up for a variety of different reasons. Key among them, as we've been talking about, is the government's role in crowding out and sort of what it's doing, and even crowding out in the worst forms of ways, right? As you said, development spending is declining, um, not increasing, which is just a shame for a young country, a developing economy, etc. Um, would you then agree that it is high government spending that is the primary driver of, um, of these deficits? And if so, what what should the government think about its own role in terms of the way it spends um, and, and where it needs to be a bit more smart about thinking about investing in the right areas that cause private sector growth and investment and, and, and sort of GDP to go up? Versus just like burning more and more money in random ways that don't achieve any outcomes except grow the debt pile a lot more
1: yes, so we we do highlight in the report that uh first there there are quite a few avenues where where uh Pakistan's fiscal expenditures the quality of it can be improved, and when you improve the quality, it does mean that quite a few. Uh, ways that you can deliver the same services, but at a lower expense. So, uh, to 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 answer your question, we don't particularly think that government spending is high. Actually, when you compare it internationally, Pakistan's fiscal expenditure is not that high as a share of GDP. Both provinces. And federal government expenditures amount to only about twenty percent. Federal alone is about fourteen percent. So compared internationally, it's not it's not high. But of course, with with regard to to, to revenues, it may be high relative to the amount of that you're collected, and that causes the, the 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 um sorry the the deficit. Now, while it's not high, the the one thing that's extremely characteristic, very unique, relatively unique, about Pakistan's fiscal expenditure is that it's very rigid. 70% of it is like what we call pre-committed. Uh, one Uh, third of it, or 4.7% of it, goes to interest payments, as you already mentioned. Another chunk of it goes to subsidies, and another chunk goes to staff costs. So this report actually looks at ways, can, can those be reduced? Uh, so that uh, this sort of uh, pre-committed spending can actually go down. Now we do look in detail in in subsidies. So, for example, we look at at, at tariff dif- uh, electricity tariff differential subsidies, which accounted for like 167 billion in FY22. Not not a small amount at all. Now. We we have employed new analysis, what we call fiscal incidence analysis, that can actually uh, track how much each share of the population or household or in, in income distribution is gaining from these electricity subsidies, and we actually show that majority of uh, at least in in uh, the early years in uh, FY nineteen. Most of these subsidies, the electricity subsidies, the benefits were accruing to the richer households, and the mi- minority of the benefits were going to the poorer households. Right. I would love for you tra- to
0: repeat that if I may interrupt you here, Derek, because sure. frequently politicians, particularly when they're in power, tell us that, oh, we're doing our best to provide subsidies and keep the tariffs low for the poor. But what you're saying is that the majority of these subsidies go to the rich, not to the poor. But the narrative is always about the poor.
1: Yes. I mean, the logic of it is for the poor. But when you think of it, when you have electricity subsidies and it's not well targeted, the rich do consume more power than the poor. They have bigger houses, they have air conditioning, they have heaters. Same thing, similar logic if you have a, a gasoline subsidy, right? That the rich will be driving larger cars, V8s, as opposed to the smaller cars that consume very little gasoline. I, I, did, so some,
0: do... I did some back-of-the-envelope analysis last year with some friends when um, the, I think a 5-rupee or 10-rupee cut per litre was announced for petroleum and there was a lot of like celebration about it that if you were a basically a, a person who owned a honda 70 cc motorcycle um and looking at the average scale of the you know uh size of the household that this average citizen has in bajna which is roughly six it translated to about for the entire house the ho- household uh two and a two and a half nuns essentially so roughly 55 rupees worth of benefits if you were basically at 30000 rupee a month earning or, uh, income earning person. Whereas if you had a Toyota Corolla or a Land Cruiser, it was 10, 50, 30 X of that, given how many miles you were driving, right? So you're, I, I fully agree. And again, my analysis was very back of the envelope, just to help people understand that the subsidy is essentially not get, getting to you. I know, by the way, and we can get into that a little later, you are going to be paying for that because that is borrowing that eventually you will be taxed for.
1: Yes. Yes. So so the point about subsidies is that we 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 and we compared how a uh, 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 a social protection program like this we find that uh for BIS, 81% of the bis benefits is actually going to the poorer households which means the richer households only get like 20%. So the the major takeaway is that if the government were to were to take the money that they are spending on, let's say, energy subsidies and putting it into BIS, they could do a lot more in terms of reducing poverty. Likewise, for the same amount of reduction in poverty, the government can achieve it through BIS while saving money. They don't need to spend that much to reduce the poverty uh, if they went spend the, the money through BIS. Right. So this is what we're saying. If we shift money away from subsidies and putting it into a, a well, a good targeted program like this, the quality of spending can be improved, where the, the the social outcome that needs to be achieved can be done so at a much less fiscal cost. Right. So there are avenues to look into that and how, how the government can can do that. Uh, another thing that we kind of highlight is that with the 18th Amendment, as I alluded to, the 17 subject areas were actually devolved to the provinces, and the government has been still spending a lot of money on these devolved ministries, and one way would be to to take a look, harder look at it, and the federal government could Uh, move more and complete the devolution a bit more, and that could actually save, uh, is another area of potential savings that we highlight in the report.
0: Fascinating, and I think again um, to your point on the cash transfer program, right? I think there are, Pakistan has the infrastructure on the identity side, on the real-time payment side, um, on the cash transfer side through bis to scale it and take it to the next level and some of that has been done for example during covid but again i think there's this fundamental gap between how um, policy makers think about direct cash transfer programs um, and and this idea that subsidies are the way to go when in fact as you've explained in the report and just now um, it's really inefficient to doing that and one example i frequently point out to my friends in pakistan is to look at what India has done, right? I think India's direct benefits transfers in 2014 were about one or two billion dollars. I may be getting the exact figure correct, uh, incorrect, but today they're worth over 50 billion uh, in direct benefits transfers um, because that efficiency really has paid off not only in terms of making the government more efficient and delivering, uh, you know, uh, achieving its goal of poverty alleviation more effectively. But it's also good politics, Derek. It's it's you know when when I talk to people in India, uh, one of the reasons why they say why Narendra Modi keeps winning elections, right, is because those those poor people, instead of standing in line for their rations or standing in line for their cash every month, now get direct benefits on their phone through their zero balance bank accounts, and that is they think of who made it possible, whose government made it possible, and they vote consistently, right, and I think there is. We have to also make leaders in political parties understand that like being efficient is actually also good politics. It's not just good for the country because you will when you alleviate poverty for the masses like that, they will vote for you, and they will come back and back and back for for supporting you time and time again. Um, last question on this, which again is part of the broader conversation this year in particular uh, with the budget, is Pakistan has a big debt pool. Pakistan is continuing to run high fiscal deficit. The interest rate is like next level high, right? In- in- inflation is through the roof. It's close to 40% as the data came out yesterday. Uh, we're recording this on June 2nd. Um, how does Pakistan deal with this challenge now? Because the way I look at it is that low growth, high inflation continues to worsen this problem of borrowing, interest expenses, et cetera what would you recommend or what have has your research found as ways out of this this uh, vicious cycle on the pakistani side that we have to continue servicing this debt we're not earning enough revenues and therefore we keep borrowing more in a high interest rate environment how do we get how do we get out of this
1: right um high interest payments is really quite a a, a loss for the for the for the country because you're actually not, not getting anything for that huge amount of expenses, right? So, so the one the two things that we kind of highlight in, in, in the report is that first, uh, the adoption of a treasury single account, a TSA account, it can actually improve the effectiveness of the government's cash management practices. So what we saw in the in 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 June um, FY22 in June 2022 uh, total federal government deposits in commercial banks actually amounted to like more than 2 trillion rupees that's a huge amount and if you were to to uh, the, the government has these cash deposits sitting in banks but and yet it's not used and the government goes and borrows more from commercial banks Right. So if you took that 2, two trillion rupees and you multiply, uh, try to work out the interest cost savings, it, it would mean at, at 20%, the policy rate, that works out to be more than 400 billion rupees. So it's a huge amount. So what we're saying is that uh, the a TSA, a treasury single account already has been prepared and is ready for rollout. So a quick implementation of that can actually... Reduce the borrowing needs of the federal government. Use the cash uh, the cash that is available to reduce the borrowing needs. So that's one way. Another way, at least in the longer term, is to borrow when interest rates are low. Unfortunately, it's extremely high now. But what has been happening in the past few years is that the government has been ramping a lot of borrowing at the floating debt rate. So the floating debt... Uh, that stock has been growing rapidly from 28% of the tome- total domestic debt to around 42% of total domestic debt, right? From 28 in FY19 to 42 in FY22. So it's been rapidly growing. And when that happens, when the interest rate goes up, interest rate payments on these floating rates naturally balloon, which is what we're seeing. So one one. One measure that we're saying it is important when interest rates are low, as we saw that during COVID, borrowing interest rates are really low. That's when a government and most governments do try to borrow longer term at fixed rates to reduce interest costs over, over the medium term. So those would be two ways that, the, that the, the report highlights in terms of trying to keep interest payments low.
0: Got it. And again, I think you would agree the core sort of element of this, right, if we look at reforms on the public expenditure side, is to begin rationalizing these expenses, being a bit more thoughtful about where does public spending go towards achieving poverty alleviation or delivering building next generation infrastructure that generates growth but not doing it in a way that leads to, for example, as you explained, uh, electricity subsidies being captured by the rich in the name of the poor. Uh, The goal is to help alleviate poverty. Let's be a bit more thoughtful about that. Um, and, And that way we make the spending a lot more impactful while cutting it at the same time. That generates benefits for everybody because it reduces the crowding out effect um, and then as a result of that, the deficit gets manageable, the debt profile begins to look a lot better and people are better off, uh, especially those uh, that need the most help from the state and uh, as a whole. So, Derek, this has been at least for me a wonderful, engaging conversation. I've learned a lot. I'm sure the audience has learned a lot as well. Um, and, you know, th- this report that you and your team have done, I think we'll continue having a conversation going a bit deeper into the different chapters uh, to explain to folks who listen to our podcast. Uh, you know, They come for the wonky analysis. I think we've started at the summary level today to help people think about the fact that deficits do matter. Uh, it's unfortunately a conversation even on this podcast we don't have a lot of so I'm really excited to kick things off with you um, and then talking to the rest of the authors about the detailed findings they found on the various chapters but Really appreciate you taking out the time. I know you're a bit jet lagged uh, joining us on the podcast and then we'll continue uh, this conversation. And for those uh, who want to get a bit deeper into this, keep following us and then, you know, do some of the deeper reading with the data and the analysis that's out there and then uh, do share your feedback with us. So Derek, thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much.